Laugh Leap. I'm your host, Shannon Paradis. My guest today is Ben Crawford. He's the author of 2,000 Miles Together, a book about his experience hiking the Appalachian Trail with his family. They are the largest family to through-hike the Appalachian Trail. And I had the good fortune of randomly meeting Ben's wife, Cammie, a couple months back. Cammie told me some stories about their unconventional parenting and adventures they've shared with their six kids. And I knew their story would be perfect for the podcast. Cammie suggested that Ben do the podcast, so I'm chatting with him today. And first, I wanted to tell him all about my run-in with Cammie. I'll spare you the majority of the details and cut to the part where I liken Ben to Captain Fantastic, which is a movie. And if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Let's leap in. The one other thing that I recall from the conversation, my husband says to Cammie, oh, have you ever seen the movie Captain Fantastic? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So you've seen that, huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. She's like, yeah, people refer to my husband as Captain Fantastic, but we're a little (laughs) bit different. But yeah, it's a great movie. And it does kind of remind me of your story a little bit. Yeah. Um, I found the channel, watched some of the videos of the marathon, and I don't know if I completely missed her saying this in conversation about hiking Appalachian Trail, but I was like, okay, wait a minute. There's this whole other thing that they've done <laughs> and yeah. wrote a book about it. And so that was really just the tip of the iceberg. I'm like, this seems very serendipitous, would be perfect for the podcast. I am so interested to hear your perspective about everything. So first of all, you have six kids. So how old are your kids now? 2018, 16, 15, and then Flea's 10 and Rainier's 5. Did either of you guys come from a big family? No, we each, (laughs) it was kind of weird. We each had two siblings. So we came from families of three kids and our parents were married and very religious. And I don't know why we had kids so young and so many. We were very religious, but I also think that a lot of the typical reasons why people don't have kids, they didn't really hold water with me. Like people say, well, it takes a lot of money. And I always thought people have had kids for thousands of years and they didn't have Wi-Fi and air conditioning and they couldn't afford college. So how did they do it? And people said, oh, well, you need to get to know each other first when you get married before you have kids. None of those things kind of made sense to me. We got married and we were like pregnant in like a month or Whoa. two. Oh, so she yeah. was 20 when she was first pregnant? Yeah. So she couldn't even go in a bar. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And that was kind of it. We just never looked back. And six kids later, we're like, oh, wow, I guess we have a large family. Hindsight's 2020. So we love it, it never felt like when you were at three and four and five, you weren't like, gosh, this is so overwhelming. No, because you just we did it one at a time. Going from zero to one feels overwhelming. Going from one to two feels overwhelming. And then from there, I don't know, you just kind of adjust as you go, adding a little bit at a time. And if we like started from zero to six, that'd be a completely crazy different experience. But right. Every year you're just kind of making the transition. You guys are from Cincy. You start doing these marathons or what came first in sort of the adventures of the Crawford family? Well, it's interesting because I would say one of the most important moments for adventure was when we were 22, I suppose. So we had a one-year-old. Our oldest was one. I wanted to bike across the country. And Cammy, my wife slash partner, was willing to oblige. She was not into adventure. She was not interested, but I think she kind of thought he wants to do it so bad. So the only way to get him to shut up is to do it. <laughs> so we, um, I was working at Red Robin, waiting tables. We were 
on welfare. Cami was in the middle of nursing school. I went to them and said, Hey, I need to take two or three months off to bike across the country. And they said, well, you can't do that. You can't take that much time off. So I said, well, I quit. And then you can hire me when I get back if you want. And we had, I think like uh, $2,000 or something like that. So we had budgeted $10 a day total for all three oh of gosh. us. Oh my gosh. But we had this government peanut butter that we were getting for free because uh, <laughs> of pregnancy and stuff for welfare. So we flew the peanut butter out with us to, oh to eat it while we were biking back. And that was just one of those moments where we had the decision to make like, okay, everyone's saying like, don't do this. This is a terrible idea with kids and you need to start settling down. That was the pressure we felt. When you're with kids, you don't do things like this. You act responsible and mm-hmm. responsible means sitting at home, being bored as hell, like going to Chuck E. Cheese. And, but I just knew like I needed to do this thing. So we did it. Wait, time out, time out on the story. Were you into biking? No, Okay. we weren't at all. In fact, we were on mountain bikes, which is like a terrible way to bike on roads, but we thought they looked cooler than 10 speeds. That's how much we were not into biking. (laughs) Um, But we did, I did have this adventure where I biked from Seattle to San Francisco and it took uh, 12 days and it just gave me this taste of another alternative lifestyle of like not knowing where you were going to sleep at night. Neither of us grew up hiking or backpacking or sleeping outdoors or anything like that. So very quickly it was like, oh, there's kind of this like call to adventure, I guess I would describe it. It's something felt wild about it and untamed and it felt really valuable to my, we prioritized it. And we did it. We flew out. Long story short, we made it 500 miles. And then we got hit by a car. What? And it, it ended our trip. And everyone was okay, but our bikes were totaled. You were on your bikes and got hit? Yeah. Yeah. We, we got hit by a, it was Holy like an 88 year old guy oh. that got charged with reckless endangerment or something. Holy he just wasn't paying attention. So it ended our trip. And in that way, it was a disaster. But <laughs> one of these nights, we stayed in this garage in Damascus, Virginia. And there was all these people sleeping in the garage on bales of hay. And we're like, I mean, first of all, we're sleeping in a garage with a (laughs) one-year-old. So that was an adventure in itself. And then we're talking to these people. We're like, what the heck are you doing? And they're like, we're doing this thing called the Appalachian Trail. So the Appalachian Trail goes right through this town. And that's when we first heard about backpacking. It was very early on that I think we knew we had this decision to make about like, are we going to follow the script of what it takes to be a quote unquote good parent or responsible parent or do what society expects of us? Or are we going to live our life and invite our kids to join us. So the, those were formative moments. Did you get your job at Red Robin back? I didn't. I mean, this is like such a terrible long offshoot story that you, I guarantee you do not want to get into, but the 22nd version was I came back and then I read a book on how to beat the game of blackjack. And then I became a professional blackjack player for 10 years. Oh so man, I, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Wow. So that launched me into this other business world, but I never like the Red Robin job was my last job I ever had actually. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but it's weird. So, I mean, we went on to this, um, you know, to have quite a bit of money and, and fame in certain ways. And then people always ask like, well, what was the moment? And I always say it was that moment that I quit my minimum wage job at Red Robin, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a big sacrifice to a lot of people to walk away from a minimum wage job. But for me, I was, it wasn't just the money. I was walking away from this kind of culture, this culture and this way of other people evaluating my success, mm-hmm. which I think it gives us a lot of our ability to do the type of parenting we do. I feel like a lot of people are just really parenting to get the approval of others. They're not doing what's actually best for their kids. You took the more challenging path, which I commend you for, because the easy thing to do 
in most cases is to stay and just be content and punch the clock. But you actually have much more freedom in not reporting into the man. Well, it's more challenging and it's more rewarding. There was these moments we would also hike this um, loop around Mount Rainier in Washington. It's like a 95 mile hike. That are, that's where our family first started backpacking. And we'd leave at like 4 a.m. from our house to drive out to the mountain. So I'd be driving along the freeway and there's no traffic where we're going. And I'm looking back on the other side of the freeway and it's just like bumper to bumper of people like waiting to get into Seattle to clock in at their cubicle. And I always don't miss that. Yeah. And I always thought it was so funny because here we are the first time we did it, our kids were two, four, six, and eight, and it rained for nine days straight. So here we are driving out to this damn mountain to hike in the rain with four kids. And I always thought, man, if anyone knew what we were doing on this freeway, they'd all feel sorry for us. (laughs) But then on the flip side, I look at them and I would, I'm feeling sorry for them. Nothing in life is easy, whether it's walking around a mountain with four kids or whether it's sitting in a cubicle for 50 years so that you can retire. And it's like, I guess we all got to choose our poison, you know, to your point about do we want to sit at home and take our kids to Chuck E. Cheese and just kind of go through the motions, you kind of need to make an active choice of you got one life to live and how you want to. Yeah. And I think it's important to be honest about that. For me, I think a lot of people look at what the things we've done, whether it's marathons or getting hit by a car while trying to bike across the country or hiking the Appalachian trail and thinking like, Oh, a blizzard gets you or bears. I don't mind if a bear gets us. It's like, (laughs) I mean, we're all going to die, right? You'll you'll be dead. So it'd be a fucking great story. Like, and I, I'm not going to go out of my way to make it happen, but that's not the worst case scenario for me is a, is dying in a blizzard or a bear getting us like, we're going to die. I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but it's like that brave heart stuff where they're like, every man dies, not every man truly lives or whatever. I would rather die by a bear getting me than slowly dying for 50 years in a cubicle. I say that I don't really think a bear is going to get me because if you look at crossed. The, yeah, well, if you look at the statistics, it just doesn't happen. Like it's yeah. like, I mean, I, I've actually looked at bear deaths <laughs> statistics uh, for writing the book. So it's kind of a funny example. But did you, did you see bears on your trail? We saw one bear or maybe two bears in the zoo in New York okay. at the trail goes through the zoo. And that was the only bears we saw. You did see it on the trail, but it was in a zoo. It was in a zoo. (laughs) Let's back up to, so you had had hiked Mount Rainier. Sounds like at this point, you've got this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it an adrenaline bug, but sense of adventure and you're, you're wanting to explore. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it adrenaline because it wasn't like I was addicted to skydiving, but I, I was addicted to activities that would give us a different perspective and appreciation on life. At the point that you were hiking Mount Rainier, um, you were not working? I had jobs. I started businesses along the okay. way, but I just didn't work for other people anymore as an employee. And Cami, did she finish nursing school or what was going on with her career? She finished nursing school. We paid the big bucks, but avoided debt to get her through nursing school. Then she became a nurse and was a nurse for about 12 days. <laughs> and and then she quit. We got in the biggest fight of our marriage. Uh-oh. And that was the last that ever happened of that $40,000 nursing career diploma <laughs> degree business. <laughs> so the financial aspect of this is coming from the companies that you built and sold. Now, are you talking about our entire lifestyle or are you talking yeah. about well, lifestyle and how you were able to get to the Appalachian Trail? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. And there's two like kind of quick things I'll say about that. One is at one point, yes, I was making a lot of money and doing like startups 
I did sell those businesses. So I had enough money to live off of for a series of years. But I would say the biggest decision that actually allowed us to do the trail is not the amount of money we made, but it's the decision we made about 10 years ago to pay off all of our debt. Because there's a lot of people that make a lot of money but they spend essentially an equivalent amount. And then no matter how much you make, you're still kind of caught in this cycle of needing to make more the next month and the next year to pay off the things that you kind of bought, assuming you were going to make more money. Mm -hmm. And we kind of gave that entire process, the middle finger about 10 years ago, where everyone was telling us not to, like our financial advisors, the tax people, the blah, 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 were saying, it's stupid to pay off debt. The debt was so cheap. It's like, you're paying 2% oh. and you can make 5%. And there's all these reasons to have even like mortgages, like what people consider good debt. And we kind of said, we value the flexibility and the freedom more than we do having access to more money and more stuff. Yep, that makes sense. So we paid off our debt. Like I said, that's the most important thing because when you don't have debt, you can go places. You can walk away from your house because you don't have a mortgage. You can rent out your house and make income. And that's what we did on the Appalachian Trail. You know, it was a five-month journey, five months and nine days. You know, it's almost half a year. A lot of people ask, well, how can you afford to do that? Like, I can't afford to do that. And I tell people, I did all the math. I have a whole video on our YouTube channel where I broke down every single credit card statement, Wow! every single expense, because I feel like this is so important because people have so many excuses for not doing this type of thing. The total cost of our trip after we made our rental income from renting our house while we were gone was $10 a person a day. It was $80 a day That's for insane. a family, which is cheaper than living at home. So cheap. You know, uh, you, know you can't, rent a house and pay for electricity and cable and internet for $10 a person a day and food that that includes food that includes dozens of hotels that we paid for. So I really don't think money is the reason why you can't go walk in the woods. It's the not an inhibitor. It's not a, it's not a great excuse, but it is definitely an excuse. It's an excuse. Um, it's not a good one. Now there's other vacations like Disney world that are going to be really, really expensive. Break the bank. If I remember right, I feel like I did in this video, but I think our total cost was man, it was either 13 or 23,000 bucks. I forget. So then but did you kind of compare notes to other travelers on the trail to see if, was that a lot less, significantly less than what other people were spending? No, REI has some blog posts where they say, I think it costs 5,000 bucks to do the Appalachian Trail for most people. or Per person. But, per person. But that's for um, five months. When you think about it, the fact that we're doing a five-month dream vacation. Now, I understand that walking through the woods is not everyone's idea of a dream vacation. So it does, like I said... Compared to Disneyland, where you're going to pay five grand for a week, it's just a completely different mindset. But to have the freedom to meet the types of people we met, to have the type of life-changing experiences we had for 10 or 20K, I'm like, geez, I don't know how people can Great way to do not it. to do that. Yeah. At the time, your kids were between the ages of two and 16 that when you guys started. hyped the Appalachian Trail. And the two-year-old was being carried. Yep. Did you guys do anything in preparation for the trip, physical training, things like that? No, not really. Now I will say our family is pretty physically fit. And I would say that we were no strangers to like doing hard and difficult things. Like our family had run marathons before this point. And that was really important because the first week to month is really just miserable. Like on the trail, there's no way to avoid that. Like it's hard. 
you go from a couch with Wi-Fi watching Netflix at night to now you're walking with a 20, 30, 40 pound backpack on your back, carrying all your stuff in like 20 degree cold temperatures in Georgia, up and down hills. It Were you all know, the all- kids carrying their own stuff? Yeah. Uh, so it's just not easy, but you get used to it. Humans are incredible at adaptation. Mm-hmm. And every day you get stronger. Like the first day we started hiking as early as we can. And it was so hard. And we hiked all day long until it basically got dark. We got eight miles in and it, and it felt like the trail is 2,189 miles. (laughs) Now we had 2,181 miles left to go. It was so (laughs) depressing. Yeah. Like, and it was like at that rate, I think it would have taken us like eight or nine months. Oh my God. We're like, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. But, you know, you fast forward two or three or four months and we're knocking out 20 mile days Wow! while taking hour, hours long lunch breaks, swimming and just relaxing. And it didn't, so you're it getting didn't even way feel more hard. efficient. Well, efficient and just like ripped, <clears throat> you know, like our legs and our, our minds and our bodies. We're just like machines mm-hmm. and every hiker goes through this. Like, it's not just us, like on average for the entire 161 days, we averaged 13.5 miles a day. And that's even taking, I think it was 12 or 13 days off. So just signing up for that level of transformation to answer your original question. I don't know if the training up front is as important as just the desire to stick with it, because if you stick with it, the first two or three weeks will be your training, no matter what. That's a really good point. Now, if you need to train so that you don't quit in the first two or three weeks, like I get that, but we, we knew we weren't going to quit. Um, you knew that you weren't going to quit. What if something crazy happened? Okay. So that's a good distinction because I didn't mind quitting if someone broke a leg or if, even if we just decided, you know, this is like not what we wanted. And we came close to at least having those conversations, but just quitting because it was hard. That was something we had worked through before we started the trail because we knew it was going to be hard and we had done hard things. But with eight people, I had to be realistic of like, there's a lot of things that could have made us quit. I mean, if one of our kids was in or me was in physical harm, it was, or whatever. It was dangerous yeah. to keep on going. When you were talking about the training and how everybody kind of starts out the same and you, you think that you're going to do really well first day, but it's actually the hardest is just getting going. It reminded me of Wild, the story about Cheryl Strayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see that movie? I didn't, but I am okay. familiar with it. So Reese Witherspoon plays her character and she's packing her backpack and it's huge. And yeah. she, she gets all of her stuff ready and she's like repacked it 20 times and she goes to stand up and she falls backward. <laughs> yeah. And then on the trail, she makes that same mistake. She gets 20 steps and she barely makes it to the entrance sign and she's just sweating her ass off. And she's like, this was a horrible idea. That's like a super common story. That's what's kind of great about it. The more you go on the trail and you're talking to these people that have been hiking with you now for one, two, three, four months, you all look back at your first day and you're like, wow, look how far we've come. And so there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is you could look like, well, I need to master backpacking before I start the trail. So I pack perfectly. Or you can just say like, I'm signing up for a process that will transform me. And that's kind of how you guys went in. Yeah. I think we just wanted that transformation and that experience together. We trusted the process. We knew it was going to happen. And no matter how you start, you're not going to be the same when you finish. It was so tough that first week and month. We learned tricks along the way and we changed the way we ate. We changed the way we cooked. We changed the way we set up camp. You evolve. You're in like this little hiking community for six months where mm-hmm. you're all exchanging tips and information. It's going to be okay. Like you don't need to read books beforehand. I don't think like... <laughs> 
<laughs> might help a little bit, but it, the reality doesn't set in until you're actually on it. Yeah. But really, I do think your attitude has so much to do with it because like you see people that show up to the trail that it's their first day ever carrying a backpack in their entire life. And they show up with Walmart gear. And then you see people with tricked out like thousands of dollars worth of Arcteryx, Patagonia, REI gear. You can't tell by what they're wearing who's going to finish. It has to do with the mental attitude. The Walmart kid, I get inspired by those guys because they're like, I got a poncho, the $8 one. They suffer, but they're like, guess what? We're all suffering out there. I think it was the entitlement that sometimes gets people to quit, not the gear. Yeah. Maybe feeling just very sure of yourself that, oh, I've done these hikes before. And so I I will definitely succeed at this, but they might not be the people that finish. Yeah. I mean, we had never done anything like that. We weren't sure if we'd be able to handle it. I just kind of knew. Did you ask your kids if they wanted to do this? So of the six, the oldest two, we gave the choice to come on and they thought about it for a while and they both decided to come on. And then during the hike, the oldest three, we gave them numerous choices because there was these difficult moments and we're hiking in New York. I remember one point it was like my son, he was 13 and he was having a pretty miserable time. And it was by this point, it was probably 80 or 90 degrees and pretty dusty. Mm. And, you know, it was kind of one of those hard moments. And he was complaining quite a bit and blaming us for making him come. And we had this moment where passing by New York City. And I said, if you want, we'll get you a train back to home. You can stay with your grandparents and you'll have air conditioning and video games for us the summer if you want. Or you can stay with us. But if you stay with us, you can no longer blame us for dragging you on this trail. It's going to be your choice. You know, you got to own that. And he thought about it for a day or two. And ultimately he decided, he came back and said, I want to stay. And from that point on, everything changed with him. You know, it was still hard. The trail didn't get any easier, but now it was like his choice and he owned that. I realized that I think a lot of why he was complaining wasn't so much because the trail was hard, but because he didn't feel agency about making the choice. But the other kids, it was just kind of like what we were doing as a family. So they were like- (laughs) along stuck with it (laughs) till the end ride or die um like sorry you were born in this family but you know there's a question on the book on amazon at the very end of the description of 2000 miles together it says something like do ben's kids will they ever talk to him again after this Yeah. Did did they talk to you after that trip? Yeah, they do. But I think that question was like playing on my worst fear of that, at least the way I'm wired. We come from a very religious background, like I said earlier. And mm-hmm. I think there was tools in our tool belt that we had as parents before where we could have forced our kids to do this and got them through it. I mean, I think every parent knows like there's that moment in the parking lot of the grocery store or church or wherever it is for the kids like freaking out. And you're like, yeah. shut the fuck up. And you like squeeze their neck and you're like, if you don't shut up right now, I'm going to kill you but you don't might not say those words you're but you're just it. like there's this desperate moment where the kid looks at you in the eye and they're like oh shit like <laughs> i better comply or get my ass kicked yeah and you know there's different lengths of time that you can implement that you can do that for a minute in the grocery store or at church or you know you can do it for longer lengths of time a lot of parents get their kids to like get good grades and go to school and not do drugs or whatever by threatening them for years and years and years and i was pretty confident that i could like bribe slash I don't know what like coerce. Yes. The kids to finish the trail. But I also had this sense that, well, if I do that, the long-term effects on the relationship are catastrophic. You get what you want as a parent, but you don't build trust and you're not looking out for their safety. So that was my worst fear of this hike. A lot of people, they, they look at it and they think, oh, this is this guy's crazy wild dream that he's just trying to fulfill through his kids. And it's not true. Like it was actually my wife's idea. <laughs> 
Um, so she blame it on Cami. Blame it on Cami. <laughs> but also, not every moment of it, but as a whole, they preferred it. Yeah. When you have these crazy experiences, it's going to be a roller coaster and there's going to be pain and there's going to be fear and frustration and all that stuff. But what was one of the first things that Felia said to me? I ran a marathon. You know, she, she was excited to talk about it in, in retrospect, it was one of the coolest things that she'd done in her life. Yeah. And when we got Mm -hmm. off the trail, because we were pushing so hard to finish when we did, we kind of all had a little bit of a PTSD thing, I think, where we didn't really want to talk about it. We were just glad to be off of it. But then we started editing our video. We made this like hour long documentary about the hike. And about six months afterwards, we started writing the script and we started editing it. And I saw the kids start to gather on the computer and like watch the footage and people were smiling and laughing. And to a point when the video is released, I watched the kids watch the video again and again and again. And we cried. Oh my God. And we missed it. This always happens. I go backpacking. I get to the car and I'm like, fuck that. Let's go to a restaurant. I'm never backpacking again. It's so stupid. Take a shower. And then like three days later, I'm like, oh, I kind of miss it. What's next? <laughs> yeah. How long did it take after your trip and, you know, watching back on those videos and talking to your family about what was going to come next? Did they want to have those conversations? Yeah, it just happened naturally because our family is not one that has sat still for very long. So we always have something kind of crazy going on. It's just been the way we operate. So we've talked about doing other through hikes. You know, the kids talk about doing that stuff alone without us. Once you know that you can, I don't want to raise hikers. Like I'm like, oh, every kid of mine is going to be an outdoors kid. That's not a goal of mine. I don't really care about that. But I do feel as parents, one of my jobs or privileges is to show them what's possible for them to do so that they have options. Felia, who you talked to at the Mm -hmm. pool, she ran her first marathon when she was six, I believe. And I think by the time she was like nine, she had run five marathons, including an ultra marathon. So it's always funny for her. Like some of her friends will be like, well, I can't run. She always like looks at him and she's like, what do you mean? They like try and talk their friends and running marathons. They're like, oh, it's fun. They have pizza and you can do it. Um, (laughs) Pizza. (laughs) And just because they know it's possible. Yeah, I don't know what's next. We've talked about all sorts of different things, but I like the idea that my kids at the age of 18 or even 10 can look at something and be like, oh, I can do that. Then the question becomes, do I want to do that? And, th- and that's a great question. I don't think everyone wants to or should do this, but I do think there's a lot of people sitting at home that would say something like, I can't through hike, either financially for what we talked about before, it's too expensive. Well, it's $10 a day, yeah. or I'm physically not. And I would be like, oh, no, I think it's unfortunate that people settle for those answers. Who was the youngest hiker of your crew? That finished? Uh, Flea was seven. She was so seven she years had- old. So you look at a seven-year-old completing over 2000 miles. And if you talk to a full grown adult with working legs, you're like, you can handle it. Yeah. But I think it's all about how you maybe set up the challenge. If I say 2000 miles, it sounds very daunting, uh, very daunting. But if I say, let's start walking eight miles today, because this is how we did our first marathon. I ran my first marathon with my son. He was eight at that time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if either of us would be able to do it because we had never done it before, but we just made a little deal. We said, we're going to run as long as we can. And if we can't run, we'll stop. And we just didn't stop. And 26.2 miles later, we finished the finish line. And that's how we've run every single marathon and every single adventure. It's just like, okay, we're just going to run until we can't anymore. And if we need to stop, we'll stop. And that was how we did the Appalachian Trail. We're like, we're going to start walking that way. And if we need to stop, we'll stop. But we just didn't. We were always kind of surprised at how much you can do. 
And kind of like how you said, though, in the beginning about the money or the mm-hmm. job, people are pretty fine, like dying a little bit every day. You're never asked to make this whole decision. Hey, do you want to go to a job like for the next <laughs> 40 years that you regret and that doesn't make you happy? We never make that decision. We just like every day you kind of wake up and you do the easiest thing, which is to not quit your job. It's just like show up. The hardest decision for us, I think, was to get on the trail. Once again, it's one of those middle finger Commit. moments. You know, when I told you I quit Red Robin, one of the scariest things about that was knowing like, at least by according to my family and friends and my boss at Red Robin, like I could have been wrong. When you do something unusual, everyone's looking at you to fail because they want to make themselves feel better for why they're not doing stuff like that. Of course. Staying on that, you um, had a lot of criticism and judgment on your videos that you were posting. And you said something in your in one of your interviews that kind of stuck with me, and that was enjoy the damn pancakes. What you were referring to is you saw what was happening on social media and the way that people were responding and kind of you had this backlash. But on the trail, you experienced trail magic and the outreach and how credible people were toward you, offering you food and things to drink, people that were serving you pancakes. And you're like, we're here now. We're in the present. Enjoy the damn pancakes. Yeah. You can tune out to the virtual world, these people that you don't even know that aren't in front of you and you may never meet. Yeah. Sometimes that's the power of social media is when we all want the followers and the approval and the likes. The flip side of that is you're giving these people power over the disapproval and the not liking and the canceling and everything that goes along with that. And when you do anything that stands out in this world, you're going to, in a large enough group, you're going to get haters, you're going to get trolls, you're going to get people who don't approve of you. I, I don't know if we got a lot of hate. I don't even know what that means. Like a lot. I made it a theme of the book because it was it was impactful for me and I didn't know how to deal with it. So a lot of the book okay. is about me dealing with it, but we got a lot more positive comments. You get like a hundred positive comments, you get one negative one. And I, yeah, I think you about will the negative always one. have <laughs> one troll. And actually I've heard if you do start having trolls, that's when you know you've made it. People yeah. actually start to care. <laughs> That's some of the like best book writing advice is you write a book that makes people care, whether they love it or hate it. It doesn't matter. It's a success, even if people hate it, because it causes them to like feel something. We did have haters and we did have to like learn to we're going to live our life. If online you have something, if we don't make you happy, like that's not our job. And then also in our real life, if you're going to talk shit about us, even to our face, you can have your beliefs, but we're going to do our thing. We've had to cut people out of our regular life, largely from these religious circles in the past. We used to really count on people's approval a lot. That is unfortunately a big part of the world that we live in is that acceptance and approval and just not wanting to be the outcast, wanting to just kind of fit in with the social and societal norms. But like we talked about before, it really does take a lot of courage to to look the other direction and just do what's best for you and your family and look at where you're headed now. Like you have people's attention. And like you said, most people have a lot of admiration and respect for what you guys are doing. We, we are social creatures and I think it makes sense. But I, I also think at some point there's a guy that did a TED talk. He wrote a book called The Elephant in the Brain. Oh, yeah. Human incentive and motivation, like why we do what we do. And he talked about the three big ones, school, medicine, and religion. The evidence largely shows that people make their decisions around medicine for their even their kids. Because he said if people actually care about their health, they would sleep better, eat better, and exercise. But the m- traditional medical system, the, the main things people do are not for health. They're actually for social approval. Mm. Same thing with ed- education. If you actually cared about learning, there's like very good ways to learn. No one says school is the best way to learn. Like no one does. <laughs> And yet we do it. We dedicate massive amounts of our 
time to school and our money to medicine. So I, I just think at certain points as parents and as individuals that want to be free and live our best life, we need to ask this question, like, are these things that we're dedicating our lives to, are they helping us with our goals? Or are they just gaining a social approval? And those are not always the same thing. Do you feel like your kids are thriving in how they're being raised right now? Is that a tough question? Because where we come from, every parent says yes about that to their kids or they blame the kids, um, <laughs> which is very normal for the type of background that we come from. So I would say yes, but there's always pros and cons. We give our kids a access to a certain lifestyle. And I just don't like people putting us on a pedestal and saying we're living a better way. Like we have a way mm -hmm. and it has pros and it has cons and our kids are going to be very good at certain things. There's a story that just stands out to me as being funny because we, we never did school with our kids. One kid did one year of kindergarten and then we're like, eh, we're done with this. <laughs> so we walked away from the school system. But then three years ago, one of our kids wanted to go to school for whatever reason, high school. Mm -hmm. And there's a high, the high school is literally across the street. So we're like, sure, do what you want. Like go yeah. to school if that's what you want to do. That was like almost her form of rebelling. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so she went and we were like, what's going to happen? We've never sent a kid to school. Like, are they going to fail? Are they going to succeed? Like we were just kind of curious. And we do a Christmas party and the kid said, hey, can I invite my friends from school to the Christmas party? Oh boy. Sure. Why not? Of course. Anyways, Christmas party starts, get a knock on my door. These two adults show up and I'm like, Hey, who are you? I've never met you. And they're like, you didn't invite us to the Christmas party. I'm like, Oh, who are you? And one of them was like, Oh, I'm the algebra teacher. Ian's algebra teacher. And then I said, I'm the principal oh my God. of the school. That's who she invited. That to is hilarious. The Christmas party. Those were like her friends. So I'm like, Whoa, that's weird. Like I kind of freaked me out because I was like, the last time I was Wasn't around prepared. a principal, like was for not for good reasons. <laughs> um, so it's just weird. Is that success? I don't know. It's different. Well, and now you're bringing up something that I forgot from my and Cammie's conversation. I thought that she had said you guys homeschool, but you don't really follow a curriculum. Not at all. So what are your kids doing right now? Literally right yeah. now. Uh, one of them's playing with a rabbit. Three of them have jobs. It's such a weird conversation killer almost because people are like, oh, wh what do you do for school? If we're going to be really honest, we would say nothing. And they're like, oh, so you homeschool? And we're like, no, no. <laughs> like nothing. And where we come from, when you look at the school system from like a just a gross to generalize it for me, it is more revolved around teaching kids how to follow directions and comply than it is about learning, which is like fine. I just think we should admit that. But a lot of homeschooling in our experience, because we did take it, do it pretty aggressively for a while through these religious co-op type of things where you have kids come home and you're teaching them Latin and you're teaching them math, but they need to be like two or three years ahead and all these things. It's just a home version of that same coercive learning. And I think what we believed was if you don't force kids to learn, they won't learn. And that's what we kind of stopped believing, or at least started wondering was if, if we're not forced to learn, I learned this about myself when I ran, when I was a kid, every day I would run to school, school is a mile away and there was a bus, oh but gosh. I would, I rather run than take the bus. That's awesome. Uh, and I would try and beat the bus. That was my <laughs> goal. And yep. then in high school, I ran cross country and now running is about speed. It's about beating people. And I remember these cross country races where I absolutely hated running. I would like throw up before and after the race, just cause I was so oh, nervous about like competition. Like I just, I felt like I had to do better and I wasn't very fast. And from that point on, I, I stopped running for almost 20 years after that All because right. running was about competition. I had like lost the joy 
of running that I would do on my complete free will. And that's one of the things that we're the most sensitive about with our kids with learning and curiosity. I feel like kids naturally are curious. They naturally learn, they naturally grow and progress. And then we like force them and grade them. And I think it almost takes the fun out of learning and curiosity and growing. So we decided to just like not make it mandatory and create environments that facilitate growth and learning and curiosity and facilitate them with supporting whatever it is they're interested in. And so it's been really different. I would venture, you said three of them have jobs, so they know how to like read and write. They've got the essentials down, right? Yeah. But even that we didn't force. And that was one of the big things. Like it, it all started when we were doing heavy duty homeschooling. My wife specifically was feeling heavy amounts of guilt for our kids never being far enough. She was always feeling an incredible amount of pressure. We're sitting kids down for an hour of time, battling with them to do these reading lessons and these math lessons. Every day was just a battle. And we just decided this is so much stress for everyone. What if we just take a year off? And that was the question I asked is like, what if my kids can't read when they graduate high school? Cause that's like the worst fear of every parent. Right. And it's like, well, is that really the value of a human of that? Or why am I really afraid of that? It came down to like social pressure. Like I was afraid if people didn't judging. Yeah. People knew that I was that parent, their kid couldn't read. They'd be like, oh, well, you're a crappy parent. You don't care. All these things that are not true. Like I do care. And I was like, we can't put the cart for the horse. So we just took a year off of school and it was just kind of like resetting ourself. And we just never went back. And we saw that a lot of the fears, it's kind of like the, I don't want to go on the Appalachian Trail because a bear might get me. I don't want to not force my kids to do 12 years of school because they might not learn to read. There's this completely irrational fear is guiding the entire process. It's the total tail wagging the dog and it does not put the kids' interests first. So yeah, my kids learned how to read. I don't know how they, like we did different things for different kids. And one of my kids, in fact, it's our 10 year old. She's just learning now how to read. She ran three marathons and finished the Appalachian trail before knowing how to read it. And every one of every person said, Oh, she's behind. And we're like, fuck you. She knows how to make friends. She knows how to identify berries. She knows Mm -hmm. how to walk. She knows how to face her deepest challenges. There was so much she learned, but she had what people would consider learning disabilities or all sorts of stuff. And we didn't force it. So she just didn't read. And she did other shit that she found fun and interesting. That never would have flown in a school system, even a homeschool system. I don't think. To your point about the social elements being just extremely street smart and savvy and knowing how to navigate through the woods if she needed us you know just having like survival skills are way more important than something on paper so and it's what I, she cared about because i don't think we get to decide what's more important for other people but she cared about playing with rabbits and walking she loved running and she loved art and we just let her do that. And we didn't come and say like, no, math and reading are more important. So you learn that now. Mm-hmm. My son, he just turned, I think, 16. He's never done school at all, like a day of school in his life. He makes $35 an hour right now working out of his pajamas, editing video for people on the other side of the country. Wow. Um, the irony of school and forcing kids to do that type of thing is, you know, a lot of the jobs that are about following directions are going away anyways, in my opinion. Those are the most dangerous jobs. So it's weird that we're spending so much energy forcing kids to do things, but it's not really the most stable or beneficial. Teaching kids how to be versatile and how to come up with unique solutions and do things like storytelling and art, which will not be replaceable. To me, that's actually one of the most safest 
ironically. So people look at us and they're like, you guys are crazy. That's so risky and dangerous. And I'm like, you know, what's crazy and risky is getting 60 K in debt by doing something that was cool 40 years ago that a machine can replace in two and a half seconds. That <laughs> feels crazy risky to me. I don't remember anything I learned in high school. And a lot of that to me had to do with motivation. I didn't care. I didn't want to learn it. I had other things I wanted to be doing. I loved rollerblading. I loved being an entrepreneur. I loved printing t-shirts. I loved selling candy out of my locker. <laughs> you know, I was learning things, but not what they were teaching me. You know, that was always given the back burner in life. And I think we made a mistake of thinking, oh, if you force kids to learn, it's better than not forcing them because at least they're learning. But are they? If they don't remember it after the test, who are we doing this for? I love learning, but I just think forcing anyone to learn, it's impossible. You cannot force someone to learn. You can force them to take a test. We go around the table at night. So we have two kids, nine and six, and we go around the table and we do our rows thorn, bud, and seed for the day. The bud is, you know, what you're looking forward to. And your seed is how you help someone. Rose is the best part of your day. Thorn is the worst part. And usually what we're looking for is like something that they learned in school and they never have that. Yeah. It's like, I got to talk to my buddy, blah, blah, blah. Or my teacher said that her favorite color was pink, but they, they love the social aspect of school. So that's something that is invaluable to me, but the other stuff. I get it. (laughs) I think it's great. But yeah, as a society or as we're asking these questions, it's crazy to think that this activity that takes 30, 40 hours a week isn't producing any moments of learning. I mean, outside of the social, what you said, but. Right. So you've got tons of content online. You have uh, an at-home birth that Cami graciously put online for the world to see. You've got your 2,000 miles together. You've got fight for together. What is the message that you are ultimately wanting to relay to the world? It's changed over time from when we started our YouTube channel and whatnot. But right now I would say, you know, if there's anything that I want to show people, I guess, it's just that there's another way of living that's possible. And I don't care if people go hike. A lot of people, they go on these like hikes that are like a day or two and they tell us like, oh, I went on a hike, but it's not as big a deal as yours. And I'm like, listen, who gets to decide that? Every step of courage that we take towards fighting for ourselves and our children's health and relationships, which I come from a place where I just think relationships are the most important thing we have going on. Any relationship. It's about your relationship with yourself and your relationship with those around you. And Mm -hmm money and jobs, all these things. And the more disconnected we get, we think, oh, a job is about making money. No, it's not. A job is about providing value to other humans and connecting to other humans. And yeah, you might get money for it. We've lived a pretty alternative family lifestyle, not necessarily on purpose. It's just kind of the way we see the world and intuit it to be. And the reason why we started sharing about it and putting energy into sharing about it was because we just felt people, a lot of times they don't have that imagination or the resources to be able to envision an alternate way of doing things. So they just do whatever's handed to them. And I'm okay with that, but I, I want to spend my time letting people know that there is another way that's possible and there's pros and cons to it, but you get to decide. Having more of a say and, and more freedom in your day-to-day life. Yeah. And taking, uh, taking ownership of it, even if you decide to clock in for 40 hours a week to a cubicle to say, I'm making the choice to kill a part of myself every day (laughs) for this thing. But, um, a lot of people, they think, you know, especially with kids, and this was a huge theme of the book and our life was like, people get married and then they have kids and then they think their life is over. (laughs) 
And I thought, oh, if we hike the trail with six kids, we're going to have the worst trail experience of anyone out there because there's all these people doing without kids and they have all this, they have all this flexibility. But in the course of writing the book and examining our experience, I'm pretty convinced we had the best experience of anyone out there. Oh, that's that's awesome. I was going to ask, were other kids on the trail? Not many. You hear about it every once in a while, like maybe one or two families a year attempt it. And you do see some kids out there for like day hikes and section hiking, but I would love to see more of that. Where can people find your book and your channels? You know, the easiest way for people, we have a merch store where it helps us out if people buy it from us, but the easiest way is probably Amazon. The book is called 2000 Miles Together. It's also available like on audiobook, anywhere you get audiobooks. Our channel on Instagram is called Fight for Together, F-I-G-H-T-F-O-R, Together. And it's the same on YouTube, Fight for Together. So if people are looking for a place to start, of course, Instagram is fun and easy. But as you mentioned, we have a couple more documentary style videos of us running marathons, or there's an hour long documentary of us hiking the trail or Cammy's birth videos, like a 20 minute video that these just kind of give you a flavor for some of the insight into your life so go pick up 2000 miles together by ben crawford i myself am almost done with the book and i am loving it i'll leave you with a quote from the book now and hopefully it will give you a new lease on life or at least a fresh perspective in the course of a lifetime a series of uncomfortable adventures that shape your character and give you stories to look back and laugh about isn't a disaster a disaster is a series of unmemorable weeks months or years that leave you unchanged the question we asked as we approached the hike was the same question we used when considering the marathon. How can we live the type of story we want to read? It's led us to experience a lot of fun things together and a lot of hard things together and to keep pursuing experiences that will help us learn and grow. Ben Crawford, 2000 Miles Together.